If you would take your seats, we're going to be in Romans, Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4 this morning. And let's do the smart thing and have a quick word of prayer before we get into this. Uh, Heavenly Father, as always, uh, through your spirit, you wrote this. Help us just to hear and listen what you have to say. Think of that wonderful verse where it says, um, give us ears to hear, Lord, what the spirit is saying to the church. And we want to learn and grow, go deeper in you and leave this building and go out and make a difference for you in all that we say and do in your name. Amen. A couple quick things here. I don't know if Renee mentioned this uh, during announcements or not, but these are on the back table. These are left over from the heart to heart last night if you weren't able to make it. Just a great little thing here, a marriage principle for each day of the week from 1 Corinthians 13 and Ephesians 5. Different things to pray over. And also uh, just uh, 16 little tidbits here, godly advice on successful marriages. If you're interested, grab one of these. Good things to go home, put on your fridge, pray over, and keep your marriage in prayer. So thankful you guys can make it out this morning. In case you didn't know, it's really 9.45 in the morning. Um, I told the 8.30 service that they really love Jesus, to be there at that early with the time change. So which means you guys just kind of love them. So, but that's okay. We're in, someone took that personal. Sorry, I was just kidding. Uh, Romans 4 into Romans 5 this morning, continuing our study here through the book of Romans. We're going to be picking it up in verse uh, 16, verse 17 in Romans 4. Lord willing, time willing, get to about verse 5 of Romans chapter 5. If you weren't with us last week, it was about faith. Understanding what faith is, trying to teach this concept of faith. Faith is a difficult concept to sometimes grasp. So we went to Hebrews 11 and talked about what faith is and this idea of trusting in an unseen God doing unseen things behind the scenes and believing that he's still moving and working. And the importance of faith and how faith impacts us, how faith impacts how we live, how we pray, how we work, everything we do because we're really doing these things for the unseen God doing unseen things. With that being said, Paul laid the groundwork for what faith was in Romans 4, and now today he uses the example of Abraham to show us an example of faith and action. Now he uses Abraham because from a Jewish perspective, if you're going to name drop somebody, Abraham is a great guy to name drop, the father of the Jews. So if he can show how Abraham walked and lived in faith... That will impact us today as well. So with that being said, that's our introduction to taking the step of faith one step further. And what can we learn from the faith of Abraham? So continuing our study here through Romans, we're going to back up to verse 16 where we left off last week. Therefore, it is a faith that it might be according to grace, so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. So we talked about faith and grace last week. Grace a gift, salvation that God has given us. And through faith, we accept this gift as salvation of what Christ did on the cross for us. Faith and grace working together. And now he transitions to Abraham. So, verse 17, As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. In the presence of him who he believed, God, who gives life to the dead, and call things which do not exist as though they did, who contrary to hope and hope believed, 
so that he became the father of many nations according to what was spoken. So shall your descendants be. And not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead since he was about a hundred years old in the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God and fully convinced that what he had promised, he was also able to perform and therefore was accounted to him for righteousness. Abraham's faith is the example that Paul wants to use here. Let's talk about Abraham's faith. Look at verse 18. Who contrary to hope and hoped believe. Different translations say it a different way. One translation says, even when there was no reason for hope, Abraham kept hoping. Another says, against all hope, Abraham and hope believed, and so became the father of many nations. That idea of faith and hope, where where it just doesn't look like it's going to work out. When you lose hope, you lost a lot. Now, what did Abraham have to have faith in? Well, he was promised that he'd become the father of many. This is a promise that God gave him. And we know that God fulfilled the promise. Jump ahead to verse 19. It happened when Abraham was 100 years old. Sarah, about 90. Now think about that. God promised him a son. God promised him a generation. 100 years old is when it happened. Now we just got done studying Genesis on Wednesday night, so some of you guys have heard these points not that long ago. You know, God could have done this when Abraham was 60 and and Sarah was 50. That would have been kind of impressive. Not completely unheard of. He could have done it when Abraham was 70 and Sarah was 60. Now you're starting to get into, okay, that's kind of like uh, front page news type thing. He could have done it at 80 when Sarah was 70. That's becoming unbelievable. 90 and 80. He waits till he's 100 and Sarah's 90. That's completely beyond the realm of human possibility. That has to be something of God. It has to be. Now, quick teaching point before I move on. Sometimes the Lord waits to move in your life because he makes the situation so unbelievable that you have no option but to believe it was God and nobody else. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. I don't really like it when he does that. I like to hear your testimony about what God did in your life. But sometimes the Lord waits. He really does. And he did this with Abraham. He could have done this when Sarah was 20 and Abraham was 30. He could have. He chose to wait. And so as he waited... The situation just got stranger and more unbelievable to now, thousands of years later, we use this man as an example of faith. And the same thing happens in your life and my life. Sometimes the Lord waits to move, not because he's unloving, not because he's unkind, because he knows if he waits, the situation just gets tougher and tougher. So when he does move, there's no explanation but God. None. We mentioned on Wednesday night that we throw around this term miraculous way too much. It's a miracle that that team won. It's a miracle that that situation worked out. Miracle means no explanation but God. And so for Abraham to have a child at 100 and Sarah at 90, God waited. He waited. To the point that Abraham was basically dead. Did you catch that in verse 19? Not being weak in faith, he not consider his own body already dead in the deadness of Sarah's womb. The writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 4 that basically this was a dead man and a dead woman having a child. See, that's what faith and hope does. Faith and hope still has you believing and trusting even when the situation looks dead. Have you ever seen a dead marriage? Have you ever seen dead relationships, dead opportunities? See, people come in and they have this idea that that marriage is dead. There's no hope. Ah, there's always hope. That relationship is dead. There's no hope. There's always hope. 
I missed that opportunity. That opportunity is now dead. No, there's always hope. That's what Abraham is trying to teach us through his life, that even when the situation looks dead, there's still the hope and faith that God is still moving and working even when we don't see it. The unseen God is moving in unseen ways in relationships and situations that seem hopeless and dead. And God just simply says, do you have faith to believe that I'm still moving and working? Now think about what Abraham had to go through. We've used this example many times before. Abraham, before he became Abraham, was Abram. Abram means exalted father. Abraham means father of a multitude. Abraham got his name changed back in Genesis 17. Father of a multitude. And how many kids did Sarah and Abraham have at that time? None. Now, as we mentioned before, once again, if you lived during Old Testament times, your name meant something. So when you would meet somebody and you'd meet Abraham, so you would hear Abraham, you'd say, oh, Abraham, father of a multitude. Abraham, how many kids do you have? None. Now, can you imagine being in Abraham's position when he gets this name change, father of a multitude? I mean, wouldn't there be a part of Abraham that says, Lord, come on, don't. I mean, this is embarrassing. Walking around saying, I'm father of a multitude. I have no kids with my wife. You know, I got the one kid with Hagar, but we're not going to talk about that. You know, he was walking in faith that he was the father of a multitude, even though he wasn't. That's like me nicknaming myself too tall. You know, I'm just, it's, it's in faith. It's going to happen. But the father of a multitude, when he had no children, he still had faith that God was moving and working even though we didn't see it. And guess what? And this is where the powerful verses come in. Verse 20, he did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God and being fully convinced that what he had promised, he was also able to perform. I love that powerful verse right there. He did not waver. Some translations said he did not stagger. He stayed strong, fully convinced that God was going to do it. Verse 21, God promised it, God would complete it. Now, as believers, let's just be blunt Sometimes, verse 20, we waver, we stagger. I was thinking about some Christians I know, and God love them, I love them. Sometimes they're the most on-fire believer you've ever seen. Passionate about the Lord, passionate about the things of God. They're telling us what they're in the Word, they're in prayer, and just they have this excitement for who Jesus is. And it's amazing. I mean, you want to get them up here and just say, share your testimony, tell what the Lord is doing. But they're only like that when everything's going good. As soon as life gets difficult, they waver, they stagger, and then they disappear. Then they pop back, and they're completely crazy for Jesus again. And then they waver. You know, we call them the bubbly brooks. They're very shallow, but they're very loud about their faith. God is saying, wait a second here. I'm looking for people that don't waver at the promise of God. I know what type of believer you are. I know what type of believer I am when everything's going good. What type of believer are we when things are difficult? What type of believer are we when we look at the marriage, the relationship, the opportunities, and they look dead? Is our faith still there? Is our hope still there? I I cannot stress to you enough verses 20 and 21. These are great refrigerator verses. He did not waver at the promise of God. Through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God, being fully convinced that what he had promised, he was also able to perform. 
It's amazing how often our faith falters in times of difficulty. As soon as the going gets a little tough, we start questioning, we start wondering, we start doubting. And then almost like God sits up in heaven saying, is my track record not good enough? Have I not proven to you enough that I will get you through this? We just talked about this last week. And it's a point we've made numerous times recently, but it fits right in again, so it bears repeating. This idea of big picture faith, macro faith versus micro faith, little faith. The examples of the macro faith, big faith. God created the world in six days. Virgin birth, God's word. Jesus died on the cross. We didn't see those things. Those are big things. We believe those. We trust those. We don't waver on this idea of Jesus on the cross. But the micro faith... The little faith things, the day-to-day routines. I don't think God's going to get me through that doctor's appointment. I don't think God's going to get me through that situation at work. I got this bill. I don't think he can take care of it. It amazes me as a believer when I look at my own life, how I have such a huge macro faith on the big things in the Bible. But in my day-to-day walk with the Lord, how often I allow such a little situation to make me stumble. And God is saying, if you can trust me in the big things... Can't you trust me in the little things? If my God can create the world out of nothing, he's going to help me through that situation today, tomorrow, or the next day. And that's where faith starts to kick in. We do not waver at the promise of God. We're fully convinced. And what's the result of this for Abraham? Verse 22. And therefore it was accounted to him for righteousness. What saved Abraham? It wasn't his works. It was faith. And it goes back to what we just said in verse 16. Therefore, it is of faith that it might be according to grace. What a beautiful combination salvation is. Faith, trusting, and grace. Christ's work at the cross. What a beautiful picture that is. So we can learn from Abraham's life. What else can we learn from? Verse 23. Now, it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but it was also for us. It shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. Now, if you remember that word imputed, we talked about that a couple weeks ago. Imputed is an accounting term. It means basically we would say, I ran the numbers, I crunched the numbers. So when it's imputed to us for righteousness, as it says, it means that God ran the numbers and we're saved. He ran the numbers. He he realized that he had enough grace and mercy to pay off my debt of sin. Because if you run the numbers, my debt of sin is pretty big. I shouldn't be saved. But if you run the numbers according to Jesus, he can pay it off. So it's imputed to us. Run the numbers and it's taken care of. But it's not just written for us. Verse 23, I should say for Abraham, it's written for all of our sakes to learn from these people. Go with me, if you will, real quick to 1 Corinthians 10. 1 Corinthians 10. Let's talk about this idea of learning from others. These Old Testament examples that God has given us, what can we learn from them? 1 Corinthians 10. Paul writing here, starting in verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all of our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea, All ate the same spiritual food, all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Real quick sub-point here. If you are interested in going a little bit deeper, I really encourage you. That verse 4 is a fascinating verse. 
Go back and study that example out in the Old Testament and look at that spiritual example of Christ being the rock. It's a really neat study if you're looking for something to go a little deeper. Verse 5. But with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Here's the key, verse 6. Now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as also they lusted. Jump ahead to verse 11. Now all these things happened to them as examples. And they were written for our admonition on whom the ends of the ages have come. Admonition. It was written as a warning to us. But when you read the Old Testament, Paul is saying these are examples of what to do and what not to do. So therefore, you don't have to go through it. You can learn from it. You can learn what to do. You can learn good, godly examples. If you're struggling on being pure in an impure world, go read about Daniel, who took a stand and remained a man of God in a world that was completely falling apart. If you're looking at an example of marriage, look at Aquila and Priscilla in the book of Acts. Those are examples that God gave us. But most of the examples that are given are we're supposed to learn from their mistakes. Look at verse 7. Do not become idolaters, as were some of them. As is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. That's from the golden calf story in Exodus 32. Nor let us commit sexual immorality, as some of them did, and in one day 23,000 fell. You know, that's from Numbers 25 when they combined idolatry and fornication with the women of Moab. Nor let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents, nor complain as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. Those are examples. Now think about this. Those examples are given so that way we don't have to live that life to learn. I mean, God is trying to teach us. We don't have to learn the dangers of drunkenness. We can just go back and look at what happened to people in the Bible. Noah. Got drunk, passed out naked on the floor. Lot got drunk, what happened? Has an ancestral relationship with his daughters. We don't have to go through that to learn that. We can just study those men out and say, yeah, that just doesn't work out good. Drunkenness leads me to shame. It leads me to stupid choices. I don't know if I've ever had anybody come up to me in all my years of being a pastor saying, hey, pastor, when I'm completely wasted, I make the best choices I've ever had in my life. No. We can learn from those examples. We can learn from Abraham. We just use Abraham as a good example. Abraham, lying about his wife being his sister. We can learn about the dangers of lying. What about the example we did on Wednesday night? David, adultery with Bathsheba, murder of Uriah. But as we mentioned David on Wednesday, when we think of David's sins, we normally jump to adultery and murder. But the sin that started everything with David was being lazy. Like we mentioned on Wednesday. The Bible says that it was the time of year... When kings go out to war. David, as the king, should have been leading his troops in battle. Instead, he's home in the evening doing what? Taking a nap. He wakes up from his nap, and there's Bathsheba. The sin that brought David down was laziness. Those are examples to us. This is why we read the Old Testament. This is why we study the Old Testament. is to say, okay, what can I learn from these men and women? What can I learn to not do and what to also do? They are examples given to us. And I think a lot of times as believers, we read these stories and really God is saying, listen, I put this down for you to learn. So you don't have to go through it. But I tell you, there's some believers that just have to learn the hard way, isn't there? I, I, I'm willing to bet that probably whatever sin you're struggling with, we could probably find a character in the Bible that had a similar situation. Maybe not the exact same, but had a similar situation 
where God says, learn from their example of either what to do or learn from their example of what not to do. Now the question is, will we do that? Will we learn? Or do we need to learn the hard way? Jump back, if you will, real quick to Romans. Because God allows these situations to grow us, to get our attention. As we mentioned earlier in the lesson with Abraham, the Lord waited. The Lord waited for Abraham and Sarah to have a child where it became to the point of almost ridiculous. In fact, it was. If you remember correctly, when, when the Lord revealed to Sarah that she was going to have a child, Sarah's response was, she laughed. Isaac's name means laughter. It was so absurd to Sarah that she laughed when she heard that she was going to have a baby. But the Lord still moved and worked. So we get to verse 1 of chapter 5 where it says, Therefore, and remember why it's therefore, so because of all these points, because of Abraham's walk of faith, us learning, what can we learn about faith? Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace, in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance character, and character hope. Now hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, who was given to us. So we look at verse 1. Having been justified by faith, we talked about that, that word justified, to be declared righteous, to be declared right in the eyes of God. As Chuck Swindoll likes to say, just as if I never sinned. So we've been justified by faith. That's what we talked about last week. What is the result of this? What do we get out of this walk of faith? Verse 1, peace. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, that's a blessing. Okay, first question to ask you, how's the peace level in your life right now? You know, the older I get, the longer I walk with the Lord, the more I realize you just want peace. You want peace in your home. You want peace in your life. You want peace in ministry because it's just such a priceless thing of just having peace. You know, when I was younger and and being married and before kids, you kind of don't focus on peace so much. You kind of just got this young and dumb attitude of just going to go through life where the more I walk with the Lord, the more I realize, I just want peace, Lord. Where does peace come from? It comes from faith, trusting God. See, I have peace when I trust the unseen God moving in unseen ways. That's faith. I have peace when I trust that God still can take a dead situation and bring it to life. I have peace when I realize it's the Lord and not me. It's not my job to make you get saved. It's not my job to make you go deeper. It's my job to equip you with tools to do that. It's my job to point you towards Christ. It's not my job to grow this church because God doesn't care how big this church is. He only cares if we're equipping saints and seeing souls get saved. That's the peace. I didn't have that for a while. Just now, Lord, it's so simple. Point people to Jesus. Equip those that are saved to go deeper. And as I've said to you many times, when we get together on Sunday, it's a staff meeting. Let's get together, encourage each other. How can we pray for each other? Give you an opportunity to witness and and to serve and to etc. Worship. Now then go out there this week and do something. And then if you need tools, if you need encouragement, let us know and we'll equip you to do it. That's a peace. And just doing what the book of Acts says. So we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ who through also we have access by faith into this next word now, grace. Boy, grace is a beautiful word. I didn't fully understand grace when I first got saved. I'm just going to be honest. I was one of the guys that got saved, 
So I didn't want to go to hell. That was why I got saved. You know, I, I remember distinctly sitting there, and it was when the church was in the White House, which is now the uh, library beside the bank there in Hamler. Uh, Jim was teaching. He gave an altar call, and he taught about hell. And I thought, hell sounds bad. I don't want to go. What do I need to do? Okay, Jesus died on the cross for my sins. I'll take that right now. And Jude says that. says that some are saved by fear. Good hellfire and brimstone works still. But the, when I got saved, I started realizing this grace thing. Boy, it's a beautiful thing. God just loves me. He just loves me. And as we mentioned last week, no matter how much I pray, no how much I read, no matter how much I serve, there's nothing I can do to make God love me more than what He does right now. And with that simplicity, it makes me desire to want to read more, to want to pray more. Not because I earn more love. That's not possible. It's because I just love Him so much. And I can just walk in this peace of grace. I'm forgiven. And what a beautiful picture that is. And when you experience that, that's when evangelism becomes alive and active because now you want to tell people. I can remember when I first got saved, and they're like, go tell people about Jesus. Well, what do you want me to tell them? He existed. Wrote a book about him. Pretty good guy. But once you really experience grace, now you want to go tell people, saying, you can have this that I have. And, and you can have this peace. You can have this forgiveness of sins. And it will change your life. And it will change your marriage. It will change everything in you. And when you really experience it. I think sometimes as a church, and I don't mean harvest, I mean the body of Christ, we're such a push. Go do this. Go serve. Go minister. Go evangelize. You have to be touched by Jesus first. Then the desire just comes. You can't force a deeper walk with anybody. You just have to want it. And that took me a lot of years to realize that you just have to want it. And if you want it, we want to equip you. If you want it, we want to help you. But you have to want it first. And the longer I walk with the Lord, the more I realize, boy, grace. I know this sounds silly. Sometimes I'll just sit there and I'll catch myself and I'll just think, I'm forgiven. It just makes me smile. And Dawn usually says, what are you smiling at, you idiot? And I said, I'm just forgiven, you know, you know. She does say that, so I just want to let you know. It's kind of funny. I tell these stories about my wife and you're like, Some, you just pick on your wife too much. You make her sound so awful. You go live with her. <laughs> and you'll find out some of the things that I say are not exaggerated in any way whatsoever. Grace is a beautiful thing. It's an absolutely beautiful thing. So after grace, what do we have in verse 2? Joy. Do you see that? You rejoice. Joy. I mentioned earlier in the message about believers that are excited one Sunday, disappear the next. Excited one Sunday. I have come to a conclusion. I have met very few Christians, and I don't, I don't say this to be rude, that really just have joy. I mean, they really just have joy. I run into Christians that have seasons of joy. I run into Christians that have seasons of happiness that seem like it's joy. But happiness and joy are two completely different terms. Happiness is based on external circumstances. I had a good day at work. I'm happy. I had a fun birthday. I'm happy. That was a good meal. I'm happy. Joy supersedes all external circumstances. No matter what you're facing, it's just joy. And that is really such a tough trait to have because we are so focused on this world and that I allow one good thing to make me happy and one bad thing to bring me down. 
when really my joy is based on what Jesus did on the cross. Jump back to Romans 4 and those verses 7 and 8 that we mentioned last week. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord should not impute sin. That's joy. I'm forgiven. That's joy. So what does faith give me? Verse 1, peace. Verse 2, reminds me of grace. Verse 3, joy. Verse 4, now, excuse me, verse 3. And not only this, we also glory in tribulations. Knowing that tribulation produces... Per- you know, actually, skip verse 3. If you want to cross that out of your Bible, I'm completely cool with that. You, you ever realize how God does that? Like, we have a really good thing going. Like, I mean, we could have just stopped, right? Peace, grace, joy. Wouldn't that have been fun? And then he has to screw it up by verse 3. We glory in tribulations. Do you glory in tribulations? Just asking. I mean, let's just be blunt. Verse 3. I can teach verse 3. I understand verse 3. I can counsel somebody through verse 3. I have a hard time living verse 3. I, I don't know if I glory in tribulations. I don't know if I do that. I, I will be honest. There's one time. I'll give you one example. And, and I, maybe this was a glory in tribulations. I've, I've struggled with kidney stones before. And if anybody's ever had kidney stones before, you know it's not. But I remember distinctly one time being on my living room floor, having a kidney stone attack, and I'm on all fours, dying. And my kids are around, my wife's around, and I, and I remember dying on my living room floor with the kidney stone attack. And I remember I needed to go to the ER, and I remember having a brief moment, and I, and I don't say this to elevate my faith, a brief moment of, like, two-second moment of, Lord, if I can minister to one of the doctors and nurses that are there, amen. And then I went back to whining and complaining and crying. So I don't know if I was glorying in tribulations, but I had that brief spiritual moment of, Lord, if there's some way you can use this. But I, I don't really glory in tribulations. In fact, I pray that I don't go through tribulations. And I think about how many times I pray for you guys. I pray that you don't go through tribulations, but yet God is telling me here right now to glory in it. I'm actually praying against God. Lord, make their life easy. Now, James, I want to make their life a little harder. Why would he do that? Because as we glory in tribulations, as we go through difficult times, we know that tribulation produces perseverance. Some of your translations say endurance. The tough times you go through in life forge you as a deeper, stronger, tougher Christian. It does. It builds your spiritual perseverance and endurance. Some of you know a few years ago, I got back into running and started running some 5Ks and doing stuff like that, and it was fun. Then I realized it's more fun to not run. And so I quit. Well, my boys are older now, and they remember me going to run in the 5Ks. And, like, and one of the things I asked them, I said, what do you want to do in 2015? They want to run a 5K with me. So that means I need to now go start running, which means I need to produce endurance. Endurance does not happen sitting on the couch. It doesn't. Endurance happens by me going out and running. If you want perseverance or endurance as a believer you got to start working out spiritually. That's the only way you get it. The only way your faith is tested or strengthened is to go through tough times. It is. This is the point that God is trying to make. And as you glory in tribulation, it produces perseverance. It produces endurance. Verse 4, what does that do? It produces character. It produces experience, as some translation says. It produces battle-hardened Christians. And as a pastor, I love battle-hearted Christians. I love it. I love new believers 
that are so excited that say, Lord, bring on everything. But you don't know how they're going to handle the battle until they get shot at. I love battle-hearted Christians that say, I've been shot at before I can handle this through the Lord. The best combination, new believer with battle-hearted Christian. You have the excitement of the new believer that says, bring on the world. And you have the battle-hearted Christians that says, yeah, sometimes we need to duck in the foxhole. And it's okay. It's a great combo there. My point, though, is this. The only way you can have character, the only way you can have experience is to go through tough times. When I first became a pastor, there was a group of Ohio pastors that just absolutely loved. And they had been pastors for 10, 15, 20 years, and I got a chance to meet them. And I would call them on a regular basis. They were battle-hardened. They'd been through it. They were encouraging. They were helpful. And what a blessing that was. There's a reason why Jesus spent three years with the disciples to prepare them, to get them ready. There's a reason why you see Peter in the beginning of the Gospels versus Peter in the book of Acts. It's a man full of the Holy Spirit that's been battle-hardened. Jump forward even more to First and Second Peter. You see what happens when you go through tribulations which produce perseverance, which produce character. And character then does what in verse 4? Hope. Hope. Hope is a difficult word to define. Hope is this idea of regardless how the situation looks, I still have faith that God can move and work in it. I still have faith that the unseen God can move in unseen ways. And me going through the battle proves God's faithfulness. And so therefore I rest in that faithfulness. And maybe you're going through a battle right now, a trial where it's hard to see that. Go back to one of our previous points. That's the reason we have Old Testament and New Testament examples. Daniel should not have survived lion's den. Jonah should not have survived the great fish. Jesus should still be dead in the tomb. Those are examples given to us to say, Lord, you still move and work, and that encourages me when I don't see what's going on. But I'm just going to be honest. If you really, if you really want to be used by the Lord, and you really want to make a difference, not just now, but in your town, and your community, and generations that follow you, you've got to accept the idea of glory and tribulations. You do. You have to accept the fact that difficult times grow you. Your perseverance, your endurance, your character, your experience. You have to. If you want to be the believer that gets all the way to heaven, staying away from all tribulations, to be honest, you're not going to be of much use to the Lord. The Lord uses those people that have been proven in difficult times. That's what God does. Because that teaches us to have a deeper, stronger faith and all that we do and say, I've used this example before, the bubbling brooks. The bubbling brooks talk about Jesus. God's amazing. It's wonderful. But they have no depth in their walk. And as a bubbling brook, they sound good. They look good. When you have brief interactions with them, you walk away saying, that guy is passionate about Jesus. But time reveals the depth of their walk is very shallow. Very shallow. God is looking for those deep believers that say, Lord, I'm with you to the end. Last passage here. Can you go to Proverbs 24, please? Proverbs 24. As you're going to Proverbs 24, 
I guess the question kind of comes up then is, I need more faith, Lord. Once again, I encourage you, get a copy of last week's message. Get online, listen to it if you want. Because one of the points with that was, is when the disciples were faced with these difficult situations, their prayer was very simple, increase our faith. And where does faith come? Faith comes by hearing, by hearing the Word of God, Romans ten seventeen. The more I'm in the Word, the more I'm in prayer, the more my faith grows. We can't be deep believers if we're not going to be in the Word and prayer. We just can't. And once again, I'm in the Word and prayer, not because I have to, but because I want to. So last verse, pretty straightforward. Proverbs 24, verse 10. If you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. That's a just straightforward verse. If you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. The writer of Proverbs is basically saying this. The difficult times reveal how deep your walk with Christ is. And when adversity or trouble comes your way and you immediately faint or falter, it's God lovingly showing you, lovingly showing you, you're not strong enough yet. Spend some time with me, he says, and I will show you. Isn't that what happened with Peter? Peter was going to take on the world. Remember that? Peter actually told Jesus what to do that one time. Peter whipped out the sword and was going to take off people's ears left and right. You remember that? Peter. Peter's strength was small because in the time of adversity, Jesus, everybody else will forsake you, but I won't. Trials and tribulations showed his faith was small. Now, Peter then through the Holy Spirit became this wonderful man of God. But those trials and tribulations revealed his faith was small. God sometimes allows things in our lives to really say, this is like a flashlight being shown in a dark room. How strong is your walk with me? And he allows those difficult times to come in to really just reveal it. Now the question is, what do we do when we see that? So when the day of adversity comes, and you do find yourself fainting, faltering, what are you going to do? Are you going to sit there and do the woe is me, I'm an awful believer, I can't do anything, and you're going to have this little pity party for yourself? That's what Peter did for a while, right? Or are you going to stop and say, you know what, Lord? You showed me my areas of weakness. Now through you, strengthen them. Lord, you showed me the areas of adversity where I faint and falter. Now, Lord, strengthen them through you. It's a test. It's revealing those areas we need to work on. And the Lord does that in his loving grace and mercy. Marv, if you want to come.